some seem to look upon this as a good evidence that their affections are saving, especially if the affections excited are hope or joy, or any other which are pleasing and delightful. They will mention it as an evidence that all is right, that their experience came with the word, and will say, There were such and such sweet promises brought to my mind. They came suddenly, as if they were spoke to me. I had no hand in bringing such a text to my own mind. I was not thinking of anything leading to it. It came all at once, so that I was surprised. I had not thought of it a long time before. I did not know at first that it was scripture. I did not remember that ever I had read it. And it may be, they will add, one scripture came flowing in after another, and so texts all over the Bible, the most sweet and pleasant and the most apt and suitable which could be devised, and filled me full as I could hold. I could not but stand and admire. The tears flowed. I was full of joy and could not doubt any longer. And thus they think they have undoubted evidence that their affections must be from God, and of the right kind, and their state good, but without any good grounds. How come they by any such rule, as that if any affections or experiences arise with promises and comfortable texts of scripture, unaccountably brought to mind, without their recollection, or if a great number of sweet texts follow one another in a chain, that this is a certain evidence their experiences are saving, where is any such rule to be found in the Bible, the great and only sure directory in things of this nature? What deceives many of the less knowing and considerate sort of people in this matter seems to be this, that the scripture is the word of God and has nothing in it which is wrong, but is pure and perfect, and therefore those experiences which come from the scripture must be right. But then it should be considered, affections may arise on occasion of the scripture, and not properly come from as a genuine fruit of the scripture, but from an abuse of it. All that can be argued from the purity and perfection of the word of God with respect to experiences is this, that those experiences which are agreeable to the word of God are right and cannot be otherwise, and not that those affections must be right, which arise on occasion of the word of God coming to the mind. What evidence is there that the devil cannot bring texts of scripture to the mind and misapply them to deceive persons? There seems to be nothing in this which exceeds the power of Satan. It is no work of such mighty power to bring sounds or letters to persons' minds. If Satan has power to bring any words or sounds at all to persons' minds, he may have power to bring words contained in the Bible. There is no higher sort of power required in men to make the sounds which express the words of a text of scripture than to make the sounds which express the words of an idle story or song. And so the same power in Satan, which is sufficient to renew one of those in the mind, is sufficient to renew the other. The different signification, which depends wholly on custom, alters not the case as to ability to make or revive the sounds or letters. Or will any suppose that texts of scripture are such sacred things that the devil durst not abuse them, nor touch them? In this also they are mistaken. He who was bold enough to lay hold on Christ himself, and carry him hither and thither into the wilderness, into a high mountain, into a pinnacle of the temple, is not afraid to touch the scripture and abuse that for his own purposes. 
For at the same time that he was so bold with Christ, he brought one scripture and another to deceive and tempt him. And as Satan did presume and was permitted to put Christ himself in mind of texts of scripture to tempt him, what reason have we to determine that he dare not or will not be permitted to put wicked men in mind of texts of scripture to tempt and deceive them? And as Satan may thus abuse one text of scripture, so he may another. Its being a very excellent place of scripture, a comfortable and precious promise, alters not the case as to his courage or ability. And if he can bring one comfortable text to the mind, so he may a thousand, and may choose out such scriptures as tend most to serve his purpose. He may heap up scripture promises, tending according to the perverse application he makes of them, wonderfully to remove the rising doubts and to confirm the false joy and confidence of a poor deluded sinner. We know the devil's instruments, corrupt and heretical teachers, can and do pervert the scripture to their own and others' damnation, Second Peter 3.16. We see they have the free use of scripture in every part of it. There is no text so precious and sacred, but they are permitted to abuse it to the eternal ruin of souls, and there are no weapons they use with which they do more execution. There is no manner of reason to determine that the devil is not permitted thus to abuse the scripture as well as his instruments. For when the latter do it, they do it as his instruments." through his instigation and influence. And doubtless the devil's servants do but follow their master and do the same work that he does himself. And as the devil can abuse the scripture to deceive and destroy men, so may men's own folly and corruptions. Men's own hearts are deceitful like the devil and use the same means to deceive, so that it is evident that persons may have high affections of hope and joy, arising on occasion of texts of scripture, yea, precious promises coming suddenly and remarkably to their minds, as though they were spoken to them, yet a great multitude of such texts following one another in a wonderful manner, and yet all this be no argument that these affections are divine, or that they are any other than the effects of Satan's delusions." I would further observe that persons may have raised and joyful affections which may come with the word of God, and not only so, but from the word, and those affections not be from Satan, nor yet properly from the corruptions of their own hearts, but from some influence of the spirit of God with the word, and yet have nothing of the nature of true and saving religion in them. Thus the stony ground hearers had great joy from the word, yea, arising from the word is growth from a seed, and their affections had in their appearance a very great and exact resemblance with those represented by the growth on the good ground, the difference not appearing until it was discovered by the consequences in a time of trial, and yet there was no saving religion in these affections. Solomon's daughter, in his guide to Christ, speaks of it as a common thing for persons, while in a natural condition and before they have ever truly accepted of Christ, to have scripture promises come to them with a great deal of refreshing, which they take as tokens of God's love, and hope that God has accepted them, and so are confident of their good estate. Agreeable to this, Mr. Stoddard observes in his guide to Christ, 
that some sinners have pangs of affection and give an account that they find a spirit of love to God and of their aiming at the glory of God, having that which has a great resemblance of saving grace, and that sometimes their common affections are stronger than saving, and suppose that sometimes natural men may have such violent pangs of false affection to God that they may think themselves willing to be damned. End quote. Section 6. It is no evidence that religious affections are saving or that they are otherwise, that there is an appearance of love in them. There are no professing Christians who pretend that there is an argument against the truth and saving nature of religious affections. But on the other hand, there are some who suppose that it is a good evidence that affections are from the sanctifying and saving influences of the Holy Ghost. Their argument is that Satan cannot love, this affection being directly contrary to the devil whose very nature is enmity and malice. And it is true that nothing is more excellent, heavenly and divine than a spirit of true Christian love to God and men. It is more excellent than knowledge or prophecy or miracles or speaking with the tongue of men and angels. It is the chief of the graces of God's Spirit, in the life, essence, and sum of all true religion, and that by which we are most conformed to heaven and most contrary to hell and the devil. But yet it is ill arguing from hence that there are no counterfeits of it. It may be observed that the more excellent anything is, the more will be the counterfeits of it. Thus, there are many more counterfeits of silver and gold and of iron and copper, there are many false diamonds and rubies, but who goes about to counterfeit common stones? Though the more excellent things are, the more difficult it is to make anything like them in their essential nature and eternal virtue, yet the more manifold will be the counterfeits, and the more will art and subtlety be exercised and displayed in an exact imitation of the outward appearance. Thus there is the greatest danger of being cheated in buying medicines that are most excellent and sovereign, though it be most difficult to imitate them with anything of the like value and virtue, and our counterfeits are good for nothing when we have them. So it is with Christian virtues and graces. The subtlety of Satan and men's deceitful hearts are wont chiefly to be exercised in counterfeiting those that are in highest repute. So there are perhaps no graces that have more counterfeits than love and humility, these being virtues wherein the beauty of a true Christian especially appears. But with respect to love, it is plain by the scripture that persons may have a kind of religious love and yet have no saving grace. Christ speaks of many professing Christians whose love will not continue and so shall fail of salvation, Matthew 24:12 and 13. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved which latter words plainly show that those spoken of before whose love shall not endure to the end but wax cold should not be saved persons may seem to have love to god in christ yea to have very strong and violent affections of this nature and yet have no grace this was evidently the case with many graceless Jews, such as cried Jesus up so high, following him day and night without meat, drink, or sleep, such as said, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest, and cried, Hosanna to the son of David. 
the apostle seems to intimate that there were many in his days who had a counterfeit love to Christ. In Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. The last word in the original signifies in incorruption, which shows that the apostle was sensible that there were many who had a kind of love to Christ which was not pure and spiritual. So also Christian love to the people of God may be counterfeited. It is evident by the scripture that there may be strong affections of this kind without saving grace, as there were in the Galatians towards the Apostle Paul, when they were ready to pluck out their eyes and give them to him, although the Apostle expresses his fear that their affections were come to nothing, and that he had bestowed upon them labor in vain. Galatians 4, verses 11 and 15. Section 7. Persons having religious affections of many kinds accompanying one another is not sufficient to determine whether they have any gracious affections or not. Though false religion is wont to be maimed and monstrous, and not to have that entireness and symmetry of parts which is to be seen in true religion, yet there may be a great variety of false affections together that may resemble gracious affections. It is evident that there are counterfeits of all kinds of gracious affections, as of love to God and love to the brethren, as has been just now observed. So of godly sorrow for sin, as in Pharaoh, Saul, and Ahab, and the children of Israel in the wilderness, Exodus 9.27, First Samuel 24.16 and 17, and 26.21, 1 Kings 21.27, Numbers 14.39 and 40. And of the fear of God is in the Samaritans, who feared the Lord and served their own gods at the same time, Second Kings 17, 32, and 33. And those enemies of God we read of, Psalm 66, verse 3, who, through the greatness of God's power, submit themselves to him, or it as it is in the Hebrew, lie unto him, i.e., yield a counterfeit reverence and submission. So the gracious attitude is in the children of Israel, who sing God's praise at the Red Sea, Psalm 16:12, and Naaman the Syrian after the miraculous cure of his leprosy, 2 Kings 5:15, and so on. So a spiritual joy is in the stony ground here, is Matthew 13:20, and particularly many of John the Baptist's hearers, John 5:35. So of zeal is in Jehu, 2 Kings 10.16, and in Paul before his conversion, Galatians 1.14, Philippians 3.6, and the unbelieving Jews, Acts 22.3, and Romans 10.2. So graceless persons may have earnest religious desires that may be like Balaam's desires, which he expresses under an extraordinary view that he had of the happy state of God's people as distinguished from all the rest of the world, Numbers 23.9 and 10. They may also have a strong hope of eternal life, as the Pharisees had. And as men, while in a state of nature, are capable of a resemblance of all kinds of religious affections, so nothing hinders but that they may have many of them together. And what appears, in fact, does abundantly evince that it is very often so indeed. It seems commonly to be so that when false affections are raised high, many false affections attend each other. 
the multitude that attended Christ into Jerusalem, after that great miracle of raising Lazarus, seems to have been moved with many religious affections at once, and all in a high degree. They seem to have been filled with admiration. There was a show of high affection of love, and also of a great degree of reverence, and their laying their garments on the ground for Christ to tread upon, and also of great gratitude to him for the great and good works he had wrought, praising him with loud voices for his salvation. They showed earnest desires for the coming of God's kingdom, which they supposed Jesus was now about to set up, in great hopes of it, expecting it would immediately appear, and hence were filled with joy, by which they were so animated in their acclamations, as to make the whole city ring with the noise of them, and appear great in their zeal and forwardness to attend Jesus, and assist him without further delay in the time of the great feast of the Passover, to set up his kingdom. And it is easy from nature and the nature of the affections to give an account why, when one affection is raised very high, it should excite others, especially if the affection which is raised high be that of counterfeit love, as it was in the multitude who cried, Hosanna! This will naturally draw many other affections after it. For as was observed before, love is the chief of the affections, and as it were the fountain of them. Let us suppose a person who has been for some time in great exercise and terror through fear of hell, and his heart weakened with distress and dreadful apprehensions, and upon the brink of despair, who is all at once delivered by being firmly made to believe, through some delusion of Satan, that God has pardoned him and accepts him as the object of his dear love, and promises him eternal life, as suppose through some vision or strong idea or imagination suddenly excited in him of a person with a beautiful countenance smiling on him and with arms open and with blood dropping down which the person conceives to be Christ without any other enlightening of the understanding to give a view of the spiritual divine excellency of Christ in his fullness and of the way of salvation revealed in the gospel or perhaps by some voice or words coming as if they were spoken to him, such as these, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee, or, Fear not, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which he takes to be immediately spoken by God to him. Though there was no preceding acceptance of Christ or closing of the heart with them, I say, if we should suppose such a case, what various passions would naturally crowd at once, or one after another, into such a person's mind. It is easy to be accounted for from mere principles of nature that a person's heart on such an occasion should be raised up to the skies with transports of joy, and be filled with fervent affection to that imaginary God or Redeemer, who he supposes has thus rescued him from the jaws of such dreadful destruction that his soul was so amazed with the fears of, and has received him with such endearment as a peculiar favorite.
and that now he should be filled with admiration and gratitude, and his mouth should be opened, and be full of talk about what he has experienced, and that for a while he should think and speak of scarce anything else, and should seem to magnify that God who has done so much for him, and call upon others to rejoice with him, and appear with a cheerful countenance, and talk with a loud voice, and however, before his deliverance he was full of quarrelings against the justice of God, that now it should be easy for him to submit to God, and own his unworthiness, and cry out against himself, and appear to be very humble before God, and lie at his feet as tame as a lamb, and that he should now confess his unworthiness, and cry out, Why me? Why me? Like Saul, when Samuel told him that God had appointed him to be king, makes answer, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Much in the language of David the true saint, Second Samuel 7.18, Who am I, and what is my father's house, that thou hast brought me hitherto? Nor is it to be wondered at that now he should delight to be with them who acknowledge and applaud his happy circumstances, and should love all such as esteem and admire him, and what he has experienced, and have violent zeal against all such as would make nothing of such things, and be disposed only to separate, and as it were to proclaim war with all who be not of his party, and should now glory in his sufferings, and be very much for condemning and censoring all who seem to doubt, or make any difficulty of these things, and while the warmth of his affections lasts, should be mighty forward to take pains, and deny himself, to promote the interest of the party who he imagines favors such things, and seem earnestly desirous to increase the number of them, as the Pharisees compass sea and land to make one proselyte. Solomon Stoddard writes, Associating with godly men does not prove that a man has grace. Ahithophel was David's companions. Sorrows for the afflictions of the church and desires for the conversion of souls do not prove it. These things may be found in carnal men, and so can be no evidence of grace." And so, I might go on and mention many other things which will naturally arise in such circumstances. He must have but slightly considered human nature, who thinks such things as these cannot arise in this manner, without any supernatural interposition of divine power. As from true divine love flow all Christian affections, so from a counterfeit love in like manner naturally flow other false affections. In both cases, love is a fountain, and the other affections are the streams. The various faculties, principles, and affections of the human nature are, as it were, many channels from one fountain. If there be sweet water in the fountain, sweet water will from thence flow out into various channels. But if the water in the fountain be poisonous, then poisonous streams will also flow out into all those channels. So that the channels and streams will be alike, corresponding one with another, but the great difference will lie in the nature of the water. Or man's nature may be compared to a tree with many branches coming from one root. If the sap in the root be good, there will also be good sap distributed throughout the branches, and the fruit that is brought forth will be good and wholesome. But if the sap in the root and stalk be poisonous, so it will be in many branches as in the other case, and the fruit will be deadly. 
The tree in both cases may be alike. There may be an exact resemblance in thus, in some measure at least, oftentimes between saints and hypocrites. There is sometimes a very great similitude between true and false experiences in their appearance and in what is expressed and related by the subjects of them. And the difference between them is much like the difference between the dreams of Pharaoh's chief butler and baker. They seem to be much alike, insomuch that when Joseph had interpreted the chief butler's dream that he should be delivered from his imprisonment and restored to the king's favor and his honorable office in the palace the chief baker had raised hopes and expectations and told his dream also but he was woefully disappointed and though his dream was so much like the happy and well-boding dream of his companion yet it was quite contrary in its issue Number 8. Nothing can be certainly determined concerning the nature of the affections by this, that comforts and joys seem to follow awakenings and convictions of conscience in a certain order. Many persons seem to be prejudiced against affections and experiences that come in such a method, as has been much insisted on by many divines, first, such awakenings, fears, and awful apprehensions followed with such legal humblings and a sense of total sinfulness and helplessness, and then such and such a light and comfort. They look upon all such schemes, laying down such methods and steps to be of men's devising, and particularly if high affections of joy follow great distress and terror, it is made by many an argument against those affections. But such prejudices and objections are without reason or scripture. Surely it cannot be unreasonable to suppose that before God delivers persons from a state of sin and exposedness to eternal destruction, he should give them some considerable sense of the evil he delivers them from, that they may be delivered sensibly and understand their own salvation and know something of what God does for them. As men that are saved are in two exceeding different states, first a state of condemnation and then a state of justification and blessedness, and as God in the work of the salvation of mankind deals with them suitably to their intelligent rational nature, so it seems reasonable and agreeable to God's wisdom that men who are saved should be in these two states sensibly. First, that they should be sensibly to themselves in a state of condemnation, and so in a state of woeful calamity and dreadful misery, and so afterwards sensibly in a state of deliverance and happiness, and that they should be first sensible of their absolute extreme necessity, and afterwards of Christ's sufficiency and God's mercy through him. And that it is God's manner of dealing with men to lead them into a wilderness before he speaks comfortably to them, and so to order it that they shall be brought into distress and made to see their own helplessness and absolute dependence on his power and grace before he appears to work any great deliverance for them, is abundantly manifest by the scripture. Then is God wont to repent himself for his people when their strength is gone, and there is none shut up or left, when they are brought to see that their false gods cannot help them, and that the rock in whom they trusted is vain. Deuteronomy 32, 36, and 37. 
Before God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, they were prepared for it by being made to see that they were in an evil case, and to cry unto God because of their bondage, Exodus 2.23 and 5.19. And before God wrought that great deliverance for them at the Red Sea, they were brought into great distress. The wilderness had shut them in. They could not turn to the right hand or the left. The Red Sea was before them, and the great Egyptian host behind, and they were brought to see that they could do nothing to help themselves, and that if God did not help them, they would immediately be swallowed up. And then God appeared and turned their cries into songs. So before they were brought to their rest and to enjoy the milk and honey of Canaan, God led them through a great and terrible wilderness, that he might humble them and teach them what was in their heart, and so do them good in their latter end, Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 16. The woman that had the issue of blood twelve years was not delivered until she had first spent all her living on physicians, and could not be healed of any, and so was left helpless, having no more money to spend, and then she came to the great physician without any money or price, and was healed by him, Luke eight forty three and 44. Before Christ would answer the request of the woman of Canaan, he first seemed utterly to deny her, and humbled her, and brought her to to own herself worthy to be called a dog, and then he showed her mercy and received her as a dear child, Matthew 15:22, and so on. The Apostle Paul, before a remarkable deliverance, was pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that he despaired even of life. He had the sentence of death in himself, that he might not trust in himself, but in God that raiseth the dead, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9, and 10. There was first a great tempest. The ship was covered with the waves and just ready to sink. And the disciples were brought to cry to Jesus, Lord, save us, we perish. And the winds and the seas were rebuked. And there was a great calm. Matthew eight twenty four to 26 The leper, before he is cleansed, must have his mouth stopped by a covering on his upper lip, and was to acknowledge his great misery and utter uncleanness by rending his clothes and crying, Unclean! Unclean! Leviticus 13.45 And backsliding Israel before God heals them are brought to acknowledge that they have sinned and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord and to see that they lie down in their shame and that confusion covers them and that in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains and that God only can save them. Jeremiah 3.23-25 Joseph, who was sold by his brethren, and therein was a type of Christ, brings his brethren into great perplexity and distress, and brings them to reflect on their sin and to say, We are verily guilty, and at last to resign up themselves entirely into his hands for bondmen, and then reveals himself to them as their brother and their savior. And if we consider those extraordinary manifestations which God made of himself to saints of old, we shall find that he commonly first manifested himself in a way which was terrible, and then by those things that were comfortable. So it was with Abraham. First, a horror of great darkness fell upon him, and then God revealed himself to him in sweet promises, Genesis fifteen twelve and 16. So it was with Moses of Sinai. 
First God appeared to him in all the terrors of his dreadful majesty, so that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And then he made all his goodness to pass before him, and proclaimed his name, The Lord God, merciful and gracious. So it was with Elijah. First there was a stormy wind, an earthquake, and devouring fire, and then a still, small, sweet voice. First Kings 19. So it was with Daniel. He first saw Christ's countenance as lightning that terrified him and caused him to faint away, and then he is strengthened and refreshed with such comfortable words as these. O oh, Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Daniel 10. So it was with the Apostle John, Revelations 1. And there is an analogy observable in God's dispensations and deliverances which he works for his people, and the manifestations which he makes of himself to them, both ordinary and extraordinary. But there are many things in Scripture which do more directly show that this is God's ordinary manner in working salvation for the souls of men. And in the manifestations God makes of himself and of his mercy in Christ in the ordinary works of his grace on the hearts of sinners... The servant that owed his prince ten thousand talents is first held to his debt, and the king pronounces sentence of condemnation upon him, and commands him to be sold, and his wife and children, and payment to be made, and thus he humbles him and brings him to own the whole of the debt to be just, and then forgives him all. The prodigal son spends all he has and is brought to see himself in extreme circumstances and to humble himself and own his unworthiness before he is relieved and feasted by his father. Luke 15 Old inveterate wounds must be searched to the bottom in order to heal, and the scripture compares sin, the wound of the soul, to this, and speaks of healing this wound without thus searching of it as vain and deceitful, Jeremiah 8.11. Christ and the work of his grace on the hearts of men is compared to rain on the new mown grass, grass that is cut down with a scythe. Psalm 72.6, representing his refreshing, comforting influences on the wounded spirit. Our first parents, after they had sinned, were first terrified with God's majesty and justice, and had their sin with its aggravation set before them by their judge, before they were relieved by the promise of the seed of the woman. Christians are spoken of as those who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before them, Hebrews 6.18, which representation implies great fear and sense of danger preceding. To the light purpose, Christ is called a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest and his rivers of water in a dry place, and as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land, Isaiah 32, 2. And it seems to be the natural import of the word gospel, glad tidings, that it is news of deliverance and salvation after great fear and distress. There is also reason to suppose that God deals with particular believers as he dealt with his church, which he first made to hear his voice in the law, with terrible thunders and lightnings, and kept her under that schoolmaster to prepare her for Christ, and then comforted her with the joyful sound of the gospel from Mount Zion.
So likewise John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Christ, and prepare men's hearts for his reception, by showing them their sins, and by bringing the self-righteous Jews off from their own righteousness, telling them that they were a generation of vipers, and showing them the danger of the wrath to come, telling them that the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And if it be indeed God's manner, as I think the foregoing considerations show that it undoubtedly is, before he gives men the comfort of a deliverance from their sin and misery, to give them a considerable sense of the greatness and dreadfulness of those evils, and their extreme wretchedness by reason of them, Surely it is not unreasonable to suppose that persons, at least oftentimes, while under these views, should have great distresses and terrible apprehensions of mind, especially if it be considered what these evils are that they have a view of, which are no other than great and manifold sins against the infinite majesty of the great Jehovah, and the suffering of the fierceness of his wrath to all eternity. And the more so still when we have many plain instances in Scripture of persons that have actually been brought into great distress by such convictions before they have received saving consolations. As a multitude at Jerusalem who were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the Apostle Paul, who trembled and was astonished before he was comforted, and the jailer, when he called for a light, and sprang in and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? From these things it appears to be very unreasonable in professing Christians to make this an objection against the truth and spiritual nature of the comfortable and joyful affections which any have, that they follow such awful apprehensions and distresses as have been mentioned. On the other hand, it is no evidence that comforts and joys are right, because they succeed great terrors and amazing fears of hell. Thomas Shepard speaks of men's being cast down as low as hell by sorrow and lying under chains, quaking in apprehension of terror to come, and then raised up to heaven in joy, not able to live, and yet not rent from lust. And such are objects of pity now, and are like to be the objects of terror at the great day." End quote parable of the ten virgins. This seems to be what some persons lay a great weight upon, esteeming great terrors and evidence of the great work of the law wrought on the heart, while preparing the way for solid comfort, not considering that terror and a conviction of conscience are different things. For though convictions of conscience do often cause terror, yet they do not consist in it, and terrors do often arise from other causes. Convictions of conscience, through the influences of God's Spirit, consist in conviction of sinfulness of heart and practice, and of the dreadfulness of sin as committed against a God of terrible majesty, infinite holiness and hatred of sin, and strict justice and punishing of it. But there are some persons that have frightful apprehensions of hell, a dreadful pit ready to swallow them up, in flames just ready to lay hold of them. 
and devils round them ready to seize them, who at the same time seem to have very little proper enlightenings of conscience, really convincing them of their sinfulness of heart and life. Men can be terrified by the devil, if permission is given to him to do this, as well as by the Spirit of God. It is a work natural to him, and he has many ways of doing it, in a manner tending to no good. He may exceedingly affright persons by impressing on them images and ideas of many external things, of a countenance frowning, a sword drawn, black clouds of vengeance, words of an awful doom pronounced. The way of the Spirit's working when it does convince men is by enlightening natural conscience. The Spirit does not work by giving a testimony, but by assisting natural conscience to do its work. Natural conscience is the instrument in the hand of God to accuse, condemn, terrify, and urge to duty. The Spirit of God leads men into the consideration of their danger and makes them to be affected therewith. Proverbs 20:27. The spirit of man is a candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly, end quote. Solomon Stoddard's Guide to Christ. The devil may exceedingly affright persons by impressing on them images and ideas of many external things, hell, gapings, devil's comings, and the like. Not to convince persons of things that are true and revealed in the word of God, but to leave them to vain and groundless determinations, is that their day is past, that they are reprobated, that God is implacable, that he has come to a resolution immediately to cut them off, and so on. And the terrors which some persons have are very much owing to the particular constitution and temper thereof. Nothing is more manifest than that some persons are of such a temper and frame that their imaginations are more strongly impressed with everything they are affected with than others, and the impression on the imagination reacts on the affection and raises that still higher, and so affection and imagination act reciprocally, one on another, till their affection is raised to a vast height, and the person is swallowed up and loses all possession of himself. William Perkins distinguishes between those sorrows that come through convictions of conscience and melancholic passions arising only from mere imagination, strongly conceived in the brain, which he says usually come on a sudden, like lightning into a house, end quote. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.